Good morning again. Thank you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts, the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 13 today, Acts chapter 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along uh, on page 921, 922 uh, is where we will be in the black Bibles there, 921 and 922. Uh, So we are continuing our series called Meet Jesus. And in this series, what we've been trying to do is kind of separate the myth from the reality. Uh, Growing up in the West, we all have ideas of who Jesus is. Um, And kind of like Talladega Nights, we start making up our own Jesus too, right? I mean, there's just these all kinds of variations that are start getting way out there. And we want to kind of pull that back in and say, what does the Bible actually say? Who who is Jesus really, right? So we're not just kind of praying to our own made-up Jesus. We want to know who the real Jesus is. And we believe the most reliable manuscripts we've got God's Word, the New Testament writings, tell us who Jesus really is. We believe that these are the authoritative kind of recordings of who He is in reality. Um, There's also a lot of data to back that up. Um, When you compare the New Testament to other writings, other historical writings, we've just got more, better, older copies compared to any other ancient document we have. It far surpasses to the point of thinking there's something supernatural about this. It is so over the top. We've got so many great great copies and great manuscripts. So we're continuing this series, Meet Jesus, trying to figure out who he really is. We've been looking at the book of uh, Luke, and now we're looking more at the book of Acts. This week we're calling it Jesus for Bible People. Jesus for Bible People. One of the things that's interesting to follow as you, as you read the book of Acts, which I'd encourage you to do, is you see that the Apostle Paul and the other guys as well, but now from now on it's going to be mostly Paul speaking in this book, he would speak differently to different audiences. And if you've ever taken speech 101, anybody taking speech in high school or college, raise your hand. Okay, one of the things that you do, that's good, is audience analysis. In speech 101, you learn audience analysis. What that means is if you're going to explain to someone how to do something, you want to know as much as possible how much they already know or agree with what you're going to explain. Or if you're going to try to persuade someone of an idea, you want to know, do they halfway agree with this idea or do they hate this idea? You you want to kind of know where you stand with that group. Again, it's not to change the actual content of the message, but it's to persuade and understand how it can best be understood, right? If people already agree with you, that's going to help you a little bit in persuasion, right? If they think everything you say is stupid, you know, you got some barriers to overcome. If they agree with half of what you're going to say, you know, you're like, okay, well, here's some middle ground and then we can move forward. So you see Paul doing that. Here, he's speaking to people that are already reading the Old Testament. So we're going to see how Paul communicates Jesus to people that already believe the Old Testament. When we get into Acts 17, we'll see him communicating it to people that don't already believe the Old Testament. So we'll see him communicating in different ways. What I want to do is I want to read the first few verses, um, and then we'll kind of break it up into bits, and we'll read more as we go along this morning. So first few verses, starting in verse 13. So chapter 13, verse 13, I'm going to read verses 13 through uh, 16. So really just kind of getting us started here. Um, Background, sorry, I just got you to look at the text. One more thing. Uh, It always makes me laugh. You're looking down, you're looking up, you're looking down. Um, One more thing. Earlier in Acts chapter 13, the church of Antioch, which was a multi-ethnic, multi-tribe church, which flows from Peter's sermon last week that says the gospel's for all people, right? So now, in the book of Acts, we've got a multi-ethnic church. That multi-ethnic church just sent out Paul and Barnabas. And they said, hey, go preach the gospel to a bunch of these other tribes. Go travel around, tell people about Jesus. So now, this is them doing that. Okay, 
Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is John Mark, so he's ejecting, which will cause some conflict later on. Verse 14. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. So this is a different Antioch. There were multiple cities named Antioch. So the multi-ethnic church in the other Antioch sent them out, and now they're in Antioch, Pisidia. Antioch, Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So even though they were going to preach the gospel to different peoples in different lands, Jews and non-Jews, they would, already, they would always start with the Jews, right? They'd start at the place where people were already interested in the God of the Hebrews, because Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah, who is the Messiah for the Hebrews and for all tribes. So they would always start there, right? So they're on the Sabbath in the synagogue, and it says, uh, verse 15, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So perfect setup, right? You got the apostle Paul. He wants to tell them about Jesus. And they say, hey, Paul, do you have anything to say? He's like, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Um, I'm going to pray for us. We'll read more of the text as we move along. Let me pray and ask God to help us to understand it today. We pray, God, that you would meet us here, that you would help us hear from you. Uh, We believe that you're not silent, that you speak to us. You've given us your word. You've shown us who you are just even in creation as we see the stars and uh, the beauty of this world that you've made. Um, God, we also have questions. We suffer, we struggle, we see evil in this world. So we pray that you would help us to understand who you are and what you're doing, that you'd meet us here, that you'd open our minds and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, audience analysis is very important. It's important to persuasion. It's important to communicating. Uh, My wife actually teaches uh, at a school where there's a lot of Christian kids, and so uh, in that school, they will often use the Bible as a way to persuade, right, when they're they're writing a persuasive essay. Um, And so just the other day, she was talking to them about that and trying to help them understand that, well, you know, sometimes the people you're trying to persuade don't believe the Bible, and so you might want to cite other sources besides the Bible. And of course, the, the kids all realized at that point that my wife is an evil heretic, and they were very upset. And so she had to kind of work with them a little bit to help them understand. She's like, no, I mean, the Bible's good. I believe it's true. But sometimes you want to use these other sources to connect them back to the truth of the Bible, right? And so as I said before, we see this working itself out with Paul. We see Paul speaking one way to these people in a synagogue. We see Paul speaking then in another way to pagans that live out in the country that are farmers. Um, We'll see that maybe in the next week or two. And then Acts 17, we see Paul speaking a different way to the Athenians that were all interested in philosophy and poetry. And so, again, he doesn't change the message. The centrality of the message is about Jesus. That's who Paul is preaching. But his entry point is going to vary. And so this is a great message for us because here we are. We're in a church. If, If you didn't catch the name when you walked in, we have a sign that says Grace Bible Church, right? So, so we're Bible people. This is a sermon, Jesus for Bible people. People that read the words about Jesus can miss Jesus. You can read the words about Jesus and miss Jesus. And so Paul is here to help them to see that this book that you're all devoted to is ultimately about Jesus. He wants them to meet Jesus, the point of the story. And so in a synagogue, in this time, you'd have a mixed audience 
you'd have two groups roughly of people committed to the Old Testament. One group of people would have been fully Jews, right? They were culturally Jews. They were committed. They were totally bought in. They followed all the rituals. And then you had this other category that we met last week called God-fearers. And those were basically pagans that had given up on paganism and would come and listen to the scriptures and were interested in the God of the Hebrews, but they hadn't fully bought into the system yet, right? Like they hadn't gotten circumcised. They hadn't done everything. hadn't gone the full nine yards. And so you've got two groups of people, some that are really devoted or maybe were raised in it, some that are kind of devoted. And that's kind of like, I think in some ways, like churches today, we've got people that are all in, totally committed. You know, they're doing everything. They're ministering. They're partnering with the church. And then you've got people that are just kind of interested in this God of the Bible. Um, but both groups are starting with the foundation of this Old Testament story is good and valuable, and I'm interested in what it has to say. So we're going to see now how Paul communicates Jesus is the point to these kinds of people. The first point that we're going to see as Paul opens this up is that the Bible convicts. The Bible convicts. One of the problems in the Old Testament, and it's a problem we have with uh, Bible people today, is we often get this mixed up, and we tend to think that because we're on the right team and because we're the right people, that we're the good guys and everybody else are the bad guys, right? Don't raise your hand. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. But I know even I think that way sometimes, right? You know, you just kind of begin to be judgmental and you're like, I'm on the right team. I'm the good people. What's wrong with this world? It's all those bad people over there. But actually the central message of the Bible is that all people are broken, that all people sin. And when you read the Old Testament, that message comes out really clear. Over and over again, they are sinners. They're messing up. And so if you read the Bible, one thing you'll notice is it's going to try to convict you, convince you that you're a sinner, that there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with me. Uh, and so that's what we see here as he unfolds the story, and we'll pick it up really just where I left off. We'll pick it up in verse 17. So this narrative of the Old Testament, he's going to show them, convicts them that there's uh, something wrong with them. So verse 17 says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So uh, Spider-Man, the movie, well, the old, like, 10 years ago movie, it said, with great power comes great responsibility. Anybody remember that line? Maybe you've heard it in other places as well. Um, This is where he starts, right? He says, God chose you. God chose you and he made you great. There's, there's a responsibility there, right? They, they owe something to God. So the, the conviction is beginning. It says, he made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. So listen to that phrase. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. This is not, and y'all are just better than everybody else, and you're perfect, and you don't need a savior because you're on the right team, right? That's That's what they would have liked Paul to say, but he's like, and God had to put up with you for 40 years. He put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 19, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, that's where uh, Jack White gets his song title, seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then, verse 21, this is another conviction spot. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So again, remember, these are people like, you may not know the whole Old Testament story. Um, I've read it more over the years, so I kind of get some of these connections. The people he's talking to would have known these stories. And when he starts talking about Saul and them wanting a king, they would have known that he's convicting them. 
your ancestors didn't like the leadership that God had in place. They wanted to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, and they said, we want a king like everybody else. We don't want the way you're leading us now, God. We want a king, and we want someone tall and good-looking that we can be proud of. And so that's what God gave them. He's like, okay, well, I'll give you Saul. He's tall, he's big, but he had some character issues. Verse 22, when he had removed him, he took out Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Even here, David, who is so much better than Saul, who had a heart after God, who would do his will, they would have known the real story of David. The real story of David, who was a sinner. And the sense in which David was a man after God's own heart was that he was repentant. Psalm 51 is this great confession psalm. David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a man after God's own heart because he threw himself on God's mercy. So again, this would be conviction of sin, showing them their need of God. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he has promised. So this, this great king that knew he was a sinner that needed a Savior, from his descendants came Jesus, the real king they'd all been waiting for, who was the Savior that had come to take care of their sin problem. But still, he's going to jog over a little bit more to conviction. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So John the Baptist was like the last great Old Testament prophet. And he preached that they needed to repent. What that means is he was telling them, don't think that it's good enough that you are sons of Abraham. Don't think it's good enough that you grew up in the right neighborhood. Don't think it's good enough that you grew up in the right family. Don't think it's good enough that you came from the right tribe. You have to repent, which means you turn from counting in who you are. You turn from counting in your own strength. You turn from relying on your own abilities, and you trust in God. That's what repentance is. So John the Baptist was preaching this kind of baptism. It's a baptism of saying, God, I'm not good enough. I need you to save me. He goes on, and he says, verse 25, And as John the Baptist was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So again, this great prophet, this righteous man, Proclaim that we all need to turn and trust in God and not trust in ourselves. We need to repent. And then he also said, and I'm not the Savior. This guy over here, he's the Savior. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. So again, this conviction, this reality, this, this knowing that we're sinners. Even John the Baptist knew it. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Uh, he goes on to explain to those brothers, those sons of Abraham, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So again, another conviction point. He says, every Sabbath, the prophets are read, the law is read, and you don't understand them. So again, he's preaching to Bible people. He's saying, you read this Bible, and you're not submissive to it. You're not repentant. You're not convicted of sin. There's, there's a disconnect that's happening here, and he zeroes in specifically in what happens with Jesus in Jerusalem. 
those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So it comes to a climax, right? The story of Israel is a story all about the Bible convicting us, the Jews specifically, but all people that were sinners. That's what all the stories point to. That's what the sacrificial system points to. That's what the heroes point to. The great heroes of the Bible kept pointing the Israelites to, man, this hero's not enough. You need a perfect hero. This hero is broken. This hero is a failure. And so all these stories point them to their need of a Savior, convict them of their sin, show them their lack of holiness, and it comes to a high point with Jesus, who actually was righteous, the only Jew that ever was perfect, and they killed him. And so that's what he's showing them is the trajectory of the story. That's the direction it's moving. He is trying to get them to a place of conviction of guilt and sin. I have a judge's gavel coming down here. He's basically got them in the spiritual courtroom, so to speak, and he's saying, you are guilty. You are guilty. We're all guilty. Paul's saying somehow we we read the Old Testament and we miss that that's the point. The point is this conviction of our problem, of our need. So the narrative of Israel's life shows that they're sinners, but that same narrative shows us that as well. We're all sinners. And so what happens is we can fall into thinking we're the good guys and the bad guys are over there, but we of all people should know we're the bad guys. We're the bad guys. It's not about like which team we belong to. It's not about which home we grew up in. It's about our heart and our submission or rebellion against God. And so my prayer for you is my prayer for myself, which is Paul's prayer for these people, is that when they would read the scriptures, they would come to a, a reality check and come to recognize we're, we're sinners. We've, we failed to live up to who God is. We failed to live up to his greatness. We've done wrong. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The irony is that that's actually how we start to do right. Is when you come to terms with conviction, when you come to terms with, I'm a sinner and I've failed, that's the entry point for the gospel. That's where the gospel comes in and says, but God is a forgiving God. But Jesus was perfect in your place. And we start to recognize that, yeah, there's this huge gap between God's holiness and my sin. But Jesus closed that gap. Jesus is the bridge. And so what's really interesting in the uh, gospel-centered life class a lot of you have studied and, and the sonship curriculum, which is something a lot of us have used as well, there's this great little chart that shows that the way to find spiritual growth is you actually begin to have a, a larger understanding of God's holiness and a deeper understanding of your own sin. So like when I first became a Christian, I was 17, I thought basically that my sins were uh, cussing and getting drunk and a couple other things I won't mention, right? And uh, I thought once I got those licked, I'm good. And that's kind of, that's being an immature Christian, right? So an immature Christian, you're like, I'm a sinner. I've got these three sins. And uh, Jesus died on the cross for those three sins. And now I'm forgiven. And I need to stop doing those things. And then I'll be one of the good guys. And we can kind of slip into this, hey, I've arrived. Now I'm a good guy. I don't do those three sins uh, hardly at all anymore. I'm really good. 
and Jesus loves me now because I'm good. And we start to forget, no, Jesus loved you because he loved you. He died on the cross for us who were already sinners. And so again, the actual steps towards transformation are a deepening understanding. You know what? Sin goes a lot deeper than, than cussing and getting drunk. Are those issues? Yeah, those are issues. But I mean, it, there's a lot more to it than that. As you grow in your spiritual walk with Jesus, you begin understanding, man, I'm more selfish than I realized. I don't really love people like I should. My, my problems go way deeper than just these surface expressions of sin. There's always a sin beneath the sin. And it goes deeper and deeper, and that should, in the gospel, cause us to trust Jesus more. The gap gets wider, and as the gap gets wider, Jesus gets bigger. Like, man, I thought Jesus just died for these sins. Man, Jesus died for these sins. There's a lot more to it than I realize, and we have a growing appreciation for Jesus, for his goodness to us, his kindness to us, his patience with us. And as we have that growing appreciation, we actually, not perfectly, but we actually start to sin less in many ways. And I believe that's what the Bible refers to as sanctification. We begin looking a little bit more like Jesus. Now, I believe the growth, you know, is kind of like this, right? It's not like this. One, two, three, four, five. It doesn't just go straight up. It's up and down. There's setbacks. There's movement forward. You know, and when we die and we're glorified and we're made perfectly like Christ, you know, it's not like we're one step away from being like Jesus when we die. Right? I mean, we realize, we have this deepening realization, man, I'm not there yet. Man, I'm way farther off than I thought I was. But again, Jesus covers the gap. And so the way our hearts let go of sin is our hearts fall more in love with Jesus. Because otherwise, the sin is what justifies us. The sin is where we find salvation. The sin is what we think is going to fix what's wrong in our life. That's why we keep going back to the sin. But the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more we're willing to, to let go of those sins. And so it's this ongoing process. And it has to start with conviction. It has to start with realizing that we have a problem. We have a problem that separates us from God. And so again, we as Bible people, they as Bible people should understand that better than anybody else. We shouldn't be the people that say, hey, I've got it all figured out and the problem with the world is all those bad people. We should say, man, I'm, I'm the problem. I'm a part of the problem with this world. It's me. It's the brokenness in me. The next thing that we see as he moves along is that the Bible hopes. It doesn't just leave you there in the sin, right? There's conviction of sin, but it takes us somewhere. And so in verses 30 through 41, we see him continue with the story. So they had killed Jesus, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He goes on and says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. So now he's going to show, um, before he showed that the Bible story shows us we're sinners, now he's going to show the Bible story also promises there's a solution to the sin problem. There is hope. So the Bible hopes. He quotes in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So he's saying there is this, this promise that there will be one to come that will escape the grasp of corruption, will escape the grasp of this sin and death and brokenness. He goes on, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, 
fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So he's saying uh, this was a, a prophecy by David about a descendant of David. And the way we know it wasn't David is David was corrupted. Meaning specifically, David did rot in the grave. Jesus did not rot in the grave. That's the difference between these two kings. So it's a significant difference, obviously, but it's kind of the linchpin of everything in our Christian faith. Verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. David couldn't forgive your sins as the king of Israel, and the priest can't really forgive the sins, and all these other options, they can't really forgive the sins because they're corrupted, dying people just like us. But Jesus can. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's not rotting in the grave. So through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 35, uh, 39, and by him, everyone who believes, everyone who believes, it's really that simple, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he's saying, the law of Moses is great for convicting you of sin. The law of Moses is great for promising a Savior to come, but the law of Moses can't actually forgive your sins. It can't actually set you free from everything you were bound by. Beware, therefore, verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So now he's warning them, don't be these kind of people that God, again, prophesied about in the Old Testament. I'm going to do something so amazingly gracious and awesome, so hopeful that you won't even believe it. Paul warns them. He says, don't be those people. Don't be those people that say that's, that's too good to be true. We want to be the people that say it's, it's too good to not be true. This is the hope we've been looking for. This Jesus is the one that's conquered sin and death for us. It's interesting how he kind of alludes to this, but the Bible really knits together sin and death. There are, there are problems that, that kind of overlap. They're connected to each other. I think as people, we often focus more on one than the other, kind of based on personality, maybe based on how you were brought up. Um, you might think more about sin and personal guilt as your real problem before God uh, if you grew up in a more religious culture. Um, if you grew up in a less religious culture, you're probably more fixated on just death, right? I mean, just death and brokenness and disease and just those kind of general problems with the world. The Bible knits those together. It says they both originated with the first man and woman sinning, rebelling against God, saying we'd rather have the, the blessings of creation apart from a relationship with the Creator. Uh, and so the Bible story narrative knits together sin and death. James is helpful with this. It gives us a little summary in James 1, 14 and 15. It says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So James kind of knits those things together. He says, you got desire, right? Desire is, I must have it. It can be good things or bad things. I was just talking to someone the other day who's kind of mixed up about this. They're like, well, desire is always okay, if it's something good. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you can desire good things and bad things too much. The New Testament word is epithumia, which can be translated as over-desire. It's like a hyper-desire. It's often translated as lust. Lust is not just sexual. You can lust for good things. 
because you want them too much. You want them more than God himself. And so that's the conviction here. That's the charge here uh, is that desire leads to sin and sin leads to death. If you want to look at it in more detail, Romans 5, 6, and 7 kind of goes in more detail how all these things are knit together and how Jesus' death on the cross, he absorbs the, the penalty for sin. His resurrection assures us that he's now conquered death once and for all. And so it's this package deal in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The power of sin and death are both broken. And that's the hope that we have in the gospel. The picture of sin is one of corruption, right? Of people dying in the grave. I didn't want to show you that, so I've got a picture of a piece of fruit that's corrupted or rotting. Any of you ever gardened um, and you pick up a piece of fruit and you're like, wow, this is beautiful, and you turn it around and there's like rotten nastiness on the other side? It's very disappointing. Seems like it happens a lot with strawberries. You, know, you grab the strawberry, you're like, oh, this is so good, and it's like, oh, there's bad stuff on the other side. Um, these are tomatoes in the picture. There's this pervasive problem that we live with. And again, it's sin and death. We're all sick and dying, right? Sorry for those of you young people that don't believe it. You're dying, right? Those of us that are older believe it more strongly. We believe it more and more every day. We're all sick and dying. There's this corruption that's like got a hold of all of us. Death and corruption. And again, the Bible links that with sin. Like even worse than our physical death is our spiritual death, is that rot in our souls where we don't love God, we don't love other people, we're fixated on ourselves. we don't actually care about anybody else, we just care about us. That's, again, the problem with all of us. It's not just the problem with the bad people out there. And Paul is promising that Jesus came to make that right. All we have to do is surrender. He says all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is trust him. There's two ways that we try to defeat sin and death in our culture. These are kind of two big categories I think it's helpful for us to think about. One is trying harder and doing better, right? Those of us that grew up conservative, we think the way to solve the sin and death problem, try harder, do better. That's it. Just take some responsibility for yourself. Come on. The other side, the more liberal side, is you just need to get in touch with who you really are, your true self. If you just follow your heart, then you can defeat sin and death. And I have bad news, both are wrong. Both are wrong. The Bible says that Jesus is the only one that ever, ever defeated sin and death. And so our only hope of defeating sin and death is trusting him, grabbing onto his coattails, trusting that he is the one that can save us. That, that's our hope. That's the Bible hope. That's ultimately what will conquer these issues in our life. Now, how do we relate to the law? Look back at verse 39. By him, everyone who believes, right, trusting in Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he's speaking to people who have devoted themselves to the law of Moses. And he's saying, this law will convict you, and this law will point you to hope but the law won't actually set you free. So to use the analogy, um, we all have different laws, right? We all have different systems of righteousness. We all have things that might help us find improvement. We all have kind of self-help systems that might help us get better. But he's saying none of those will actually save you. 
in the end, they just show you that you don't have the willpower to see it through all the way. In the end, they just show you that you can't save yourself. You might make some progress, but in the end, we're all failures. The law cannot save you. It can show you you need a Savior. It can show you that a Savior's coming, but it cannot save you. So how should we relate to the law? I think two Old Testament passages that are picked up in the New Testament are helpful for this. Ezekiel 36 promises the new covenant. And it says, in the new covenant, your heart of stone will be taken away and you'll, give, you'll be given a heart of flesh. So the new covenant, which we know is enact, enacted through Jesus, in this new covenant, our old stony heart that just doesn't care about anybody will be ripped out and we'll be given a new heart. We'll actually begin to care. That's the spiritual transformation that, that Jesus works in our heart. And then Jeremiah 31 says it slightly differently. Um, this is picked up in, in Hebrews 8 as well. It's kind of echoed in the Old and New Testament. It says that the new covenant, what happens in the new covenant is God writes his law. He's talking about his moral law, the desire to do what's right. He writes it on our heart. So we still have a relationship to the law in the sense of the law of doing what's right. But now we want to do what's right because of what Jesus has done for us. We don't do what's right so that we can set ourselves free from sin and death. We do what's right because we believe God has graciously set us free from sin and death in Jesus. Because he's done that for us, our hearts are now soft. Our hearts want to follow him. We begin to lose that grip that we had before in sin. We used to think the sin, we used to think the law, we used to think this system and that system would save us. And now we trust that Jesus will do it. And because we trust Jesus, we want to start doing what he says. We want to start doing what he says. The, the last thing that Paul points to as he takes us through this sermon and this story is that the Bible divides. The Bible divides. This is in verses 42 through 52. Um, This is a hard one for our culture, especially at this point in time, um, because our culture is becoming more and more uh, polarized, I think is the best word for that, where people are dividing uh, right and left. We're going through a cultural shift where kind of mushy middle people that aren't really committed to anything, they used to think church was great, now mushy middle people think church is evil, right? So there's this kind of transition that's taking place where as Christians, as those that follow Christ, we feel this kind of tension in the air. Um, And so what we want to do is we want to realize that, you know what, the Bible story does actually divide people, but that shouldn't be our pursuit, right? It shouldn't be our heart to pursue division. That's not what God asks us to do. Division just happens, right? So let's Let's read the text and see how it unfolds here. So verses 42 through 52. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So some of them responded eagerly. Paul, we want to hear more about this Jesus who will rescue us. Verse 43. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So there's what we would call follow-up or discipleship, right? They're like breaking into small groups. They're growing in their faith. They're going to Sunday school, so to speak, right? They didn't call it all that back then, but they're trying to go deeper. And Paul and Barnabas are encouraging them in the grace of God, helping them grow in their faith. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning now to the Gentiles. Gentiles just means 
the non-Jewish nations. We're turning now to the Gentiles. Verse 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. In that quote, he's quoting Isaiah 49.6. He's saying, this has always been the point of Israel, is to reach the other nations as well. And so now this is happening. Unfortunately, it's happening through the Jews' rejection. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Kind of a problem passage for 50% of you in the room here, right? It says that people believe because God had appointed them to believe. That's not really the point of today's sermon, but I just thought I'd point it out. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I'll just say this, both work together, right? God's doing something supernaturally. People are believing. Verse 49, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. They shook off the dust from their feet against them. They went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they got kicked out of town and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Like, man, that's not how I operate, right? If I get chased out of a city, I'm going to be kind of sad about it. I'm like, God, what are you doing? I thought you called me to this ministry. Now I'm getting beat up. Now I'm getting chased out of town. Everybody hates me. What's happening? When I first started walking with Jesus, I had a very clear understanding that to walk with Jesus meant to choose not being the cool kid anymore, right? Like that was a, a, a decision where I had to say, I'm not going to trust my life to what people think of me. I'm going to trust my life to Jesus. Um, but as I walked with Jesus, I realized, hey, people are still nice to me. I didn't get chased out of town. It wasn't that bad. But God will test us, right? And sometimes there are these turning points where God says, are you going to be with me? Or are you going to be with the crowd? Here, they were chased out of town. And they sensed that God was at work and that there was a joy, a deeper joy in following Jesus than following the crowd. Um, I was trying to think of illustrations of this because uh, I know we've all had these different, different experiences where we feel like we're on the outside. I had a picture here, no skateboarding allowed. Um, and I thought there's, this is probably a good illustration. I, I had a lot of friends that were skaters growing up. And there's kind of two ways you can look at this, right? One side is, oh, those poor skaters, they're not allowed to, you know, jump on the cars with their skateboards and all that in the parking lot. Poor things, you know, they're outsiders. We need to bring them in. And, you know, that's one view. Um, but I also just remember my friends kind of taking that on as a badge of honor, Right? Like, yeah, we're the outsiders and nobody likes us. You know, I mean, like, we cause problems. And I just want to encourage you that that's not what, I don't think that's what God is calling us to. And sadly, that's what often happens. There's kind of two extremes we can go to as we think about the division that following Jesus brings. One extreme is, well, Jesus was kind. Jesus was always inviting to outsiders. And so we begin to fall into this extreme of we've always always got to make friends. We can never make enemies. We've got to avoid division at any cost. And that's kind of a dangerous extreme, right? We've kind of made that the goal. Instead of making Jesus the goal, we've made no division ever the goal. And then there's another extreme of us where a lot of us think, yeah, division happens, so we should take that on as an identity. We cause division. Everybody's going to hate us. That means we're real followers of Jesus, right? The more enemies we make, the more faithful we are. And again, the, the point is Jesus. The point is not the division. The point 
is Jesus. So we should be as, as nice as possible. We should build bridges as much as possible. We should also understand that sometimes division is going to happen. My own heart, my own temperament is I'm, I'm a harmony builder, right? Like I want to be friends with everybody. I want to bring everybody together in the room. Whenever I've served on like board, board of directors or boards of directors, um, in those situations, I'm always the one trying to get all sides to agree. That's just how God has wired me. But I have to be careful that I don't slip off into the heresy side of that's all that matters, right? Because that's not all that matters. Jesus is all that matters. Sometimes we get to build harmony. Sometimes division takes place. The important thing is that we're pursuing Christ. The important side, uh, important thing is that we're pursuing him. I want us to wrap up by looking at a, another section of Scripture that I think is really helpful. Um, it's in John 5, 39 and 40. It's two verses so I can read this to you. Um, in 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says to the Pharisees, to the Bible people, to the ones committed to the study and love of the Scriptures, that they were doing it wrong. Throughout the scripture, we're told that we can find life in God's word, that there's life there. There's life in his words. There's life in what God has said to us. But here, it's a unique situation, and I want you to listen to these words. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So there's two kinds of ways of being committed to the Bible. There's a way to be committed to the Bible that's wrong. There's a way to be committed to the Bible where we miss Jesus. And so I think we need to hear that because this is a Bible church, right? Like we hear either because you're absolutely committed to the Bible or because you're vaguely interested in what it has to say. But you're on some spectrum of the Bible matters. I'm interested. There's a way to pursue the Bible and miss Jesus. Jesus is the point. We should only pursue the Bible as a means to understanding the life that we have in Jesus, salvation that we have in him. That's my prayer for us, that we wouldn't become the sort of people that can quote words but don't love God and don't love anybody else, but that we would love him, that we would glorify him as we know and love his word. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you invite us into communion with yourself. And we see that your word is, is an avenue to get there. We see that the scriptures testify about you. So we pray that we would be properly convicted, that, that we're a part of the problem in the world, that the problem with the world is not everybody else out there, but, but we're a part of the problem. We also pray that you would help us to see that you are the answer, that by faith in you, that by believing in you, we can have life. We thank you for that hope. We pray that you would defeat sin and death in our own lives as we trust you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.